Welcome to episode two of the Let's Talk Trade season on supply chains, where we take a closer look at recent disruptions by tracing the journey of goods from factory to port to buyer and all the links in between. I'm Jessica Hermosa, Communications Officer at the WTO. In this episode, we will focus on manufacturers, that is, the supply side of trade. Let me briefly recap what we learned in the previous episode. At the root of the crisis, there was highly stimulated demand. Consumers, particularly in advanced economies, supported by government stimulus, spent their money on tradable goods. This rapid spike in demand took manufacturers by surprise. Firms had expected demand to be weak. If you missed that episode, we highly recommend you check it out. This time round, you will hear how car makers, chip manufacturers, and medical technology companies organized their supply chains, how they adapted to the multi-crisis reality, and what lessons they learned along the way. So, let's talk trade. When we talk about supply chains, the automotive industry keeps coming up as an example, and we have with us an important guest to talk all about it. Please, can you introduce yourself? My name is Joachim Damaski. I worked my whole life in the automotive industry, mostly on the supplier side, and I'm representing now here VDA. VDA, uh, Verband der Automobilindustrie, this is the German Association of the Automotive Industry. We have also international members, about uh, more than 600 companies, both car manufacturer, but also truck manufacturer. And we have more than 600 supplying companies, engineering companies, big suppliers, but also smaller companies who have only uh, smaller parts and have only, uh, let's say, a turnover of about a few million euro. Could you give us an idea how complex the typical automotive supply chain is? So, for example, how much imported components there are in a car or how many factories are involved on average? One has to understand that uh, manufacturing plants of the car makers are only assembly plants. Most of the parts uh, from tires, sunroofs, steering wheels, uh, dashboard components, uh, seats, wiring harnesses and all the things they are uh, coming from suppliers. And we are talking about several thousand components uh, they, uh, what are used to build a car. If only one component is missing, you will not be able to assemble and finalize the vehicle. If it's uh, major components necessary for the functions like brakes, uh, like some electronic parts, like uh, window glasses, for example, then uh, unfortunately the production plant has to be stopped. So the supply chains are very complex. These suppliers would supply directly to the car manufacturers to be the first tiers. Uh, but we have also up to second, third, fourth or fifth tier components. And these, for example, can be semiconductor components where we start with the ingots. That means the silicium raw material, wafers, uh, then the electronic components production, then PC board production, then the production of, let's say, the whole electronic steering component. So we are talking at least about a five-step supply chain. How important are electronics and semiconductors for the industry? Can you help us understand what the function is or what part of the machinery in the car they're used for? 
Electronic components are absolutely necessary. We have up to 2,000 electronics semiconductor components per vehicle uh, in a normal car. And without uh, electronic components, we are not able to build a car. It starts with the engine control unit, and this is very important. As you can imagine, without the engine controlling, the engine cannot run. Ignition, for example, or um, fuel injection, diesel injection, all these parts are electronic controlled. And without the electronic units, uh, also the exhaust treatment uh, is uh, not possible. So the engine runs only with electronics. Then uh, when you look to other systems like ABS, that means uh, braking support systems or navigation system, or even the window slides, uh, for example, the all electronic controlled and without electronic control units, uh, we are not able to build even one car. And can you tell us about how the shortage of this and other parts affected the industry? Can you walk us through the supply chain crisis in the beginning stages of 2020? The first problem was the COVID crisis. And I think one has to know that the German automotive industry has about 2,000 suppliers, even more 2,000 suppliers in Italy, in northern Italy. And we all know what has happened in the Bergamo area and in northern Italy in beginning of 2020. And so everything has to be closed down. And this forced us to uh, ramp down the whole uh, logistics but also the production of vehicles. In a certain period of about two to three weeks, we had to stop all uh, car production in Germany because the components haven't been available. And then uh, two or three months later, we have been able to ramp up, but this has to be organized quite well because, as I mentioned, if only one part is missing, you cannot produce or finalize the vehicle. So then we were in the ramp up phases with all the health measures that we had to take with masks and with uh, safety distances. So all the uh, hygienic measures and uh, therefore protection already was lower. And then in the last quarter of 2020, it occurred that there is also a shortage of semiconductor components. So why bother with the uncertainty of suppliers instead of just making all the parts in one place? To explain the rationale behind this, I am joined by Coleman Nee, Senior Economist at the World Trade Organization. Coleman, why do producers rely on supply chains? In a word, actually, the answer is specialization. Just like countries have comparative advantages, uh, so do manufacturers of you know, cars and electronics and aircraft and toys, just about everything. So, uh, you know, if you can have certain components and materials supplied by the most efficient producers, then the final product that you produce, whether it be a car or a mousetrap, that will be uh, produced more efficiently, which means more goods for consumers and more profits for producers. There's also the question of raw materials, like not every country or every manufacturing company has access to everything that they need. Certainly for like energy, a small number of countries have large supplies of oil and natural gas. And so uh, bringing these goods and components together allows us to produce goods for consumers worldwide in the most efficient way possible. Uh, Historically, it would have been very difficult in the distant past to bring goods and components from a long way away to produce something in a, in a particular location. So distance, shipping costs, and also just the coordinating uh, aspect of it, it was prohibitively expensive. Now with the advent of 
computing and uh, telecommunications technology, a lot of that coordinating factor has been overcome. So supply chains were able to become more complex and deliver components just in time so that everything would be uh, produced when it was needed. But then COVID disrupted things. Uh, It's really interesting what happened during COVID. People expected maybe a, a bigger decline in trade like we saw during the financial crisis of 2009. And uh, what we saw instead was a sharp drop in trade, but then a, a rather quick rebound. So production was able to resume quite quickly. But what happened was there was a change in consumer patterns as a result of the pandemic, and this has caused strains on supply chains in a number of ways. You saw a remarkably sharp drop in trade of automobiles, a 49% drop between the fourth quarter of 2019 and the second quarter of uh, 2020. And then uh, there was also about a 5% drop in purchases of uh, electronic data processing equipment, computers and, let's say, telecommunications equipment as well. Because of remote working, a lot more people were working from home. So demand for integrated circuits and semiconductors, they only dipped slightly, about 4%. So what was happening was a lot of those chips that were going to go into automotive production, shifted over into producing computers, also products for home entertainment because people were spending a lot more time at home. They bought new TVs uh, rather than going to the movies because they couldn't spend money on in-person services, travel and so forth. They uh, either saved their incomes and they were also provided support by governments, which uh, ended up um, increasing household savings. And they shifted their consumption towards goods. So it was a big run-up in demand for goods for televisions in like um, the third quarter of 2020 and beyond. So if we look at uh, today, world trade in uh, electronic data processing equipment, you know, computers and so forth, is up around uh, 30% compared to the pre-pandemic period. Trade in automobiles is down about 3%. And so trade in integrated circuits is up about 45%. And so electronic and also telecommunications is up 14%. You can see that there has been a shift away from some of the uh, integrated circuits and semiconductors that would have gone into automobiles have now gone into uh, other types of uh, products. We've now heard a lot about the important role of semiconductors in all the goods that consumers wanted to buy. So let's trace the supply chain further upstream to the producers of semiconductors themselves. Hi, um, I'm Art Tan, Arthur Tan. I'm uh, currently Group CEO for um, Integrated Microelectronics Incorporated, which is IMI for short. Uh, we're headquartered in the Philippines. IMI is an EMS plus an electronic manufacturing service company and uh, with revenues of over a billion dollars. And we operate in about 10 countries globally with about 22 factories. Our total headcount is about 16,000 employees worldwide. What we do is we provide a product realization service for most of our tier one or tier two customers. And it encompasses industries from um, mobility, to uh, industrial, uh, consumer, communications, and also a segment in the medical defense area. For IMI, what did the supply chain crisis look like? Were all kinds of semiconductors affected? The ones that had been very, very prominent 
is the, the, the integrated circuits, the ICs, right? Because everybody seems to have a chip shortage going on and everybody's trying to do it. Well, the chip shortage actually in itself is a high value content product. None of these chips are actually shipped by sea. It's all by air. And so technically the port congestion does not affect uh, the, the, the chip itself. However, the manufacturing of the chip entails chemistry, entails equipment. These are large scale equipment and vats of chemistry and, and gases and so on that do depend on the seaports. And so that gets affected. And as, as the equipment gets affected and the capacity gets affected, and then the supply chain gets affected. The companies themselves also had to rationalize their own capacity because if you would notice that during the peak of the pandemic, nobody was buying any car because everybody was working from home. And so at that point, everybody then rechanneled all their capacity to non-mobility uh, requirements because everybody was just ordering uh, new phones and a lot more laptops and, and, <laughs> and new devices. But, but not cars. And then we woke up to the point that now we needed to travel, but we didn't want to depend on mass transport. So there's this big upstake now that the safety uh, of the individual depended on him being able to drive himself. And so there's that next wave of uh, issues that came up with the supply chain because of that automotive requirement. So we're seeing that as it uh, materializes and at first, everybody thought, oh, it'll normalize itself quickly. But we're finding out now that it's not that easy. And how was production impacted? I think uh, it, it affected us as it's affecting the rest of the world right now. In the beginning, uh, a lot of people kind of noticed that it was affecting certain market segments, especially with the U.S., because uh, the Western ports are the ones that are actually taking most of the trade and uh, shipments that's coming from the east, right? And so that's been heavily inundated with these issues, primarily driven by COVID and also the, the different uh, trade issues that happen between the two large economies, as we know. Uh, for us, uh, the U.S. accounts for about a quarter of our business. So in a sense, yes, we were affected at that level too. However, what COVID did was really reshuffle a lot of the, the hub and spoke setup that we had originally with our standard supply chain in order to be able to dispense the necessary healthcare uh, equipments, uh, PPEs and all of this uh, across the world. There, we had to then deploy all the different cargoes and ships in different areas where normally those trade routes are not taken. And so what happened was now, as we try to revert back to some level of normalcy, we're finding out that this it takes a while for us to reset all of these trade routes again with the right equipment, with the right ships, the cargoes and the container vans and so on and so forth. So we're seeing that uh, manifest itself and that's affecting us. Um, and not only us, but I think everybody in, in the whole uh, global supply chain. How did you manage the health aspect? And for the workers, people in the factories, what was it like? Well, that, that it, it was a challenge because uh, a lot of the, the lockdowns, including the transport part of it, the shuttle services was not allowed to operate 
Uh, we had to do mandatory testing. In fact, for our own factories, we had to build uh, our own uh, dormitories inside the factory. At one point, we were actually housing 2,000 employees inside our factory. And the supply chain then becomes heavily uh, affected and thereby your own business gets affected. Because even if you had the capability and what we saw was each country also uh, basically mandated a different protocol for how they were going to approach the, the COVID. Some countries went with a zero COVID policy. Others allowed it to continue to open and with, with uh, proper testing and, and vaccination. So with this disparity in the different types of uh, policies that was also implemented, including quarantines and how the goods and services was going to be allowed, the, the, the whole chain was then disrupted. So if you're working in a, a supply chain that then has to meet all the different requirements of all these steps, you see the, the quagmire and you see the, the challenges that, that, that now it presents itself to the whole chain. Let's turn to an important business that got a lot of attention during the pandemic. It's a business that also depends on the availability of computer chips and had to implement new strategies for employees and navigate changes in countries' regulations. I talked to Trevor Gunn of the medical device company Medtronic. Medtronic is today the world's largest medical technology company. Uh, in, in technology manufacturing, we today manufacture about 131,000 medical technologies uh, on a global basis. We're active in 150 countries. Yet, of course, we have missions because many of our Technologies are implanted in human beings all around the planet. Tell us about your experience during the pandemic and how you coped. We're the largest manufacturer of respiratory technologies, which of course means when patients were admitted to the intensive care units, the ICUs on a global basis, they ended up using, unfortunately, many of the technologies that we produce. So some of the technology involved intubation of the patients, uh, certainly ventilators. To give you an example of one particular technology, the ventilator, which now, unfortunately, everyone knows, um, more or less, those ventilators, which are manufactured in Ireland, um, have 1,500 components. They come from over 100 suppliers uh, from 14 different countries. Uh, You know, during the crisis, uh, as you can imagine, there was massive global demand of all the ventilator manufacturers, but certainly ourselves. And we had to uh, increase our production in Ireland five times. So literally the employees in Galway, Ireland, that were actually producing stents one day were asked if they could requalify and go uh, actually just a few miles away to start producing ventilators, which allowed us to dramatically increase the ventilator production. But of course, the relation to trade here is that, you know, on the technology side, these are technologies coming from the entire planet. We had problems both with countries putting in uh, rules, regulations that would restrict uh, those technologies from leaving their different countries. We had other countries wanting us to produce this in, in their own countries and produce immediately. So uh, unfortunately, we're still battling with some of those same issues that our industry is not properly understood and our supply chains are, are often underestimated in terms of a geographic reach and complexity. Can you elaborate on the challenges you said you had with restrictions and what you'd like to see from regulators? We need to be careful about tariffs. We've seen countries in this crisis 
uh, I won't mention any countries, but actually increase tariffs and increase complexity of borders. We, we need people to think about, and when they see a medical shipment coming, really to think about that in, in, in a different way. In such a specialized and high-stakes business, it's not easy to replace a supplier, I assume? We're not in Band-Aids. Band-Aids are very important. Uh, gauze pads are very important. But our technologies are going into people's bodies for their entire lives. We actually have our own fab, a semiconductor fab, but we also have relationships with about 12 large semiconductor firms because at the end of the day, all of our devices, be it an implanted defibrillator, a pacemaker, or a ventilator, or a, a device that uh, basically addresses issues around Parkinson's disease, these are all have very sophisticated batteries in them. They also have very, very sophisticated semiconductors. And, and we suffer, um, have suffered greatly and continue to suffer uh, through this. Um, meanwhile, trying to have those companies prioritize really uh, shipments to companies like us in the medical technology sector as at the end of the day, it's, it's a person's life that's hanging in the balance. And, and, and I think we've been quite persuasive on that point to date, but we need to continue to turn up the volume. On the issue of raw materials and, and sub-assemblies, we had to look for new vendors, some of them well outside of the medical technology industry. And, and as you know, the medical technology industry is held at the very highest quality standard on the planet. Um, ne next to airplane manufacturing, in terms of engineering, we are the we accept the almost no faults. So it's not easy for some of these uh, vendors, these, these manufacturers, to come and start supplying us on the medical side if they did not do so before. Coleman, what does it take to successfully realign supply chains or produce your own components? The thing is, if you're going to build a new semiconductor facility, you need to choose the location, you need to get uh, certain types of approvals. You have to have a certain sense of, of what demand is going to be for this product over the coming years. And um, the number of shocks that we've uh, had, particularly things like the, the current Ukraine crisis, has increased the amount of uncertainty out there. So that's going to make people um, reluctant to invest more in these things because they're less sure of their potential returns. One uh, knock-on effect from the conflict in Ukraine has been you know, it could uh, rebound on uh, semiconductors. Uh, neon, which is a, a gas, is supplied disproportionately by Ukraine. I believe they supply around half of the world's supply. I believe a firm that is one of the biggest producers is based in Mariupol, which has been the site of a lot of fighting recently. So we don't know. Uh, the thing is, uh, there's a, a lack of data at the moment. We can suspect that this will disrupt production in the future, but we really won't know for a few months uh, until we have data on reduced shipments and, and less trade in, in different parts and components. Another thing that might be disrupted is palladium shipments. Uh, I think Russia is the largest supplier of that to the world once again, supplying about half of the world's supply. And it's used in the automobile industry to produce catalytic converters. And so we don't know if or, or to what extent the production of these things will be disrupted. I know that palladium is refined in the Ukraine and exported by Russia. It could be several months before we actually see it reflected in the data. But at the moment, there's a lot more uncertainty, and that's going to make investment in these kinds of sectors, these kinds of uh, uh, component producing sectors more uncertain. And so there may be not enough investment going on. And speaking of this geopolitical conflict, how will it affect trade this year? Well, the WTO just released its annual trade forecast for uh, 2022 and 2023. 
And uh, in fact, uh, the conflict has forced us to revise down our outlook for trade quite sharply. Given the lack of data, we had to rely on some uh, simulated GDP estimates that we produced uh, in-house. A lot of these projections are more uncertain than usual. But for instance, we are predicting a trade growth of 3.0% in 2022. And previously, we had predicted 4.7%. And then we only have it rebounding to 3.5% in 2023. But I would take all of these estimates with a grain of salt. We may have to revisit this forecast in a couple of months uh, as hard data come in. But at the moment, we're uh, reaching in the dark a bit. So the biggest factor there has been the Ukraine conflict, but there are other things as well. You know, there's been new outbreaks of COVID that have uh, hit China that has disrupted production in certain sectors and also uh, container handling in ports. And so these things could have as much of an impact on the outlook going forward as the Ukraine conflict. We don't know. It's, it's a situation of uh, very uh, heightened uncertainty. Manufacturers highlighted the various sources of uncertainty they have to deal with, and with that, a greater need to bolster the resilience of supply chains. We heard this from the car makers. I think we have to see that the threat that we have currently is not only the semiconductor issues. I think we also have seen what the war in Ukraine has at the end brought to our industry because a lot of, uh, for example, uh, wiring harness production, but also other components have been uh, in uh, Ukraine. And uh, also even therefore, we had to stop the production lines. We see also other issues like the worldwide transportation capacities uh, due to the fact that, uh, for example, civil uh, air traffic has been reduced a lot due to COVID. There is a lot of air freight space not available currently. And this is a big issue because the freight costs are increasing. And therefore, the question is, is it nearshoring? No, I think not. That's not what we have in mind. But it is. Uh, we are talking about safety stocks for the time being. We are talking about, uh, let's say, increasing transportation capacities. First of all, we have to overcome the war situation in Ukraine because this is influencing a lot, especially also the uncertainties regarding energy supply for the European industry. The next issue is positioning uh, of China. We hope that we will be able to continue the worldwide supply chains also on raw materials. So the government, in my opinion, and not only the European government, but also WTO, have to make sure that the markets will stay open in the next years. Chip makers are adapting their supply chains too. The challenge here will be how the whole economy is going to now change from what we used to be, which is just-in-time manufacturing, to, to that of what happens when there's a, an aberration that happens like this, wherein if you are operating in a just-in-time environment, you're dead. And also for no second sourcing or not being able to put a buffer and so on, that entails cost. And so now we have to then decide, you know, how, how is this cost if we were to put in the redundancies necessary to prevent another issue like this? And who will bear that cost and, and how that is eventually going to be passed down to the consumer. 
more and more, uh, a lot of companies are looking at uh, really regionalizing their supply chain into a much more vertical part. So if we were to go transatlantic or transpacific with any critical part, that, that's now being looked at very closely. And what they would like to do is make sure that if, if there was any critical criticality into the supply chain, that that would be within the region rather than off region. So that also carries now some burden on us uh, on how we're going to be able to gear ourselves. One good thing that we had was because of the way that we've developed the diversification of our manufacturing processes and, and facilities, we're able to actually cater to that need uh, on a regional basis with Europe, uh, North America, and Asia. Uh, the challenge now is that the, the geopolitical side of it, where even we, we may have picked the right location, so this is something that also now compounds the problem for us. And here's what the medical goods industry would like to see changing in supply chains. It involves really a, a better coordinating mechanism between the public and the private sector which better charts demand and, and with input also from us so that we can also uh, adjust our supply chains and adjust our supply and, and to help it to allocate it to uh, critical uh, crit critical regions of the world. A couple other suggestions and maybe a bit more specific to the WTO, um, I've called on a, a more of an emergency convening mechanism. And I've done so publicly at other WTO fora where countries um, can get around a coffee table very quickly around unintended and maybe some intended trade obstacles, like a sort of a an emergency TPT committee, a technical mm -hmm. barriers to trade committee that could uh, deal with some of these issues in, in a multilateral way much more immediately. Back to Coleman Nee, who has the last word. Uh, the, the capacity for industry and for businesses to kind of adapt to new circumstances is remarkable. Uh, things like the automobile sector, yes, there have been certain uh, components that have been uh, missing, but some producers have shipped goods that say, uh, shipped their, their cars, and they're missing a, a chip that gives you uh, a particular electronic feature of the car. And they can deliver it and say, we'll install this chip when it becomes available. I think that uh, the best thing the WTO can do is to continue to uh, support uh, free and open trade. Countries may impose export restrictions, and that ends up uh, to secure the supplies for themselves, but that ends up uh, just driving prices higher globally. And also, especially in terms of food supplies, what might happen is rather than um, prices just rising, the, the poorest might be forced to do without. What we need to do is keep trade, especially in food, open and uh, just make sure that uh, the, the most needy are supplied with the, you know, what's necessary for uh, basic human needs. But as far as manufacturing is concerned, the WTO also regularly monitors uh, the development of, of trade, restrictive trade measures around the world and produces indicators for world trade and forecasts. And, and these things can help producers know what's going on in world trade. And also the organization can continue to speak up for the, uh, the value of trade in a global economy. Thanks, Coleman. This was our deep dive into the supply side, the manufacturer's point of view. 
in the next episode, we are heading portside and hearing from the people responsible for moving goods by air, road, and sea. Brace for some turbulence ahead. We have all gotten so used to things working like a clockwork, but it only worked like the clockwork when everything was without restrictions. Um, one of our ports recently has actually handled a ship with a total exchange of containers more than 27,000. Imagine having that number of boxes being dumped in your yard by one single voyage. We had a lot of ships at anchor and we still have pretty long queues at some of the major ports. Um, that's a symptom. It's not the problem. We were very, very fuel dependent. If we pay more, everyone else will have to pay more in the end. Join us soon on Let's Talk Trade.